Hello and welcome to Called to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, genderqueer, and intersex experiences. I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Kate, and my pronouns are they, them. Today, we're interviewing Nicholas B. Jacobson, and we're so excited for this conversation. But before we jump into that, we wanted to start off by seeing what brought us queer joy this week. So Kate, what brought you queer joy this week? I'm actually in the process of applying for a bunch of stuff, just like a bunch of grants and things. And so I've had to write these like diversity statements, a bunch of them. And <laughs> it's been a good process just to like list out the stuff that is going on, projects I've worked on, people I'm working with. This week, I got an email from Maria Bucor at Indiana University, who is a Romanian gender scholar, and she's applying for an LGBTQ federal grant for Romanian transgender non-binary folks um, projects for us. And so I'm listed on that. I'm, and my friend Andre, who is also in Romania, is listed on it. And it's just like, wow. There's a lot of projects going on at, at one time. And when you see it all listed out, it's like, okay, like there's stuff that's going on all over the place. And there are people who are working all over the place to make things better. So it just felt like these documents were physical evidence of all of the all of the things that we're all working towards and that it that doesn't that doesn't stop. It's not in vain, right? There are people willing to to contribute. There are people willing to donate whatever it takes to make these things happen. So that was my queer joy for the week. Thank you for that. That's a really important reminder, especially when it's really easy to highlight all the queer pain that's going on with a new legislative session. And it is good to remember, like, there's really good things happening too. And you're doing such awesome stuff, Kate, and I'm happy to be part of the Call to Queer. I remember when you were applying to one thing and you had forgotten to list Call to Queer as something that you do. And I'm like, Kate, this is important advocacy work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's been in all of my all of my stuff this week. So that's awesome. That has been noted. So thank you. <laughs> all right, Colette. How about you? So we actually ended up delaying this interview because we were supposed to record yesterday, but last minute I was able to go with my girlfriend to her brother's mission farewell. And I know people are like, queer joy at a mission farewell? And like, we were both pretty hesitant just because neither of us have been to church for a bit and it was a little weird, but I actually just had a lot of joy sitting in a chapel with my girlfriend stealing a few kisses here and there and just being able to show up as us and like no one harassed us or anything. Not that we expected that Mormons, they want to avoid that confrontation and it wasn't an issue, but it was still just really nice to be there and just show up as ourselves in a space that had caused both of us pain and just be us. And so that brought me some queer joy. So Nick, what about you? What's been your queer joy? Well, first, the, thanks for sharing y'all's. That's nice to, that's good to hear. That's as you know, especially hearing you being queer in a chapel is nice to hear. I'm not sure I would ever dare. <laughs> but let's see. Mine would be last week, last Sunday was my birthday. And I had a couple friends take me 
out camping down south where it's still warm enough to camp in January. And it's the first time that someone else has planned my birthday party since my mom. And thinking, I like to think of queerness pretty expansively as basically anything that is not cisgender, heteronormativity, and heterodominance. So for me, like cultivating deep friendship is a queer thing. And so I've recently had a like end to a seven year relationship and we're married and stuff. And so like recognizing how important friendship was in that moment, as I've, you know, like so many of us been raised to put all of my intimacy energy into a partnership relationship. And as that crumbled and some of my own childhood stuff started emerging, it made me recognize how important that, you know, having a, a, a biodiverse ecosystem of friendships and connections and love is so important. So yeah, being taken out and, you know, simultaneously the friendship thing and then also the nature thing, because as I've been doing a lot more sort of education and activism, organizing type work, I haven't spent as much time outside. And as a writer, I find it really hard to like write about why that's so important and what it is, because history is a lot easier to put into words (laughs) than like that kind of direct experience with land. So yeah, being outside with really dear friends and being like held and cared for is my Ah, pleasure. I'm so happy to hear that. And also happy birthday. Happy birthday. Didn't know it was your birthday. Um, no, I agree. I love sometimes here my queer joy is just like I am queer and I existed this week and <laughs> and that is my queer joy and and that's valid because existing in a world when you look like we do or you know whatever it is holding hands with your girlfriend or whatever like that is that is queer joy so. I, pre- I really appreciate that, actually. And I love the idea of, of camping in January. I haven't done that yet, but I would really like to. Well, I always love starting off by Queer Joy, but I'm excited to get to know you a little bit more, Nick. I know Kate and I have both been following you on one of your accounts, at least for a while. And so I'm excited to get to know you more and your queer Mormon story. So I think now's a great time to jump into that, if you wouldn't mind. Letting us get to know that. 60 seconds. Um, So I was, as Mormons call it, born into the covenant. I was born and raised Utah Mormon. And around the time I was 18, it was time to start planning a mission because I was um, assigned male at birth and socialized to be a boy. And so it was time for the mission. My 18th birthday, I got luggage and a three-piece suit. hadn't had the heart to say that I was starting to lean toward not going by that point. So kind of the mission was the catalyst that sent me looking for other things because that was the moment I started to like, well, what what do I believe? And so I left and around that time, like I'd always been better friends with femme people and girls in middle school. And by the time like 18, 19, 20, I started having like, you know, different kinds of friendships and so started being around more gay men and like they would flirt with me a lot, but I wasn't really sure that I was gay. And back in whatever years that was, 2002, 3, 4, 
I didn't know what non-binary even was. So I was like, well, I don't think I'm gay, but I don't think I'm straight. And I don't, I don't know what I am. Anyway, some years later, the person I was married to came out as non-binary while we were dating. And again, still didn't really understand what was going on, but I was just like, cool, that's you do your life. You know, I'll learn as we go. And through like watching them, I started to like recognize those things in myself. Like I started wearing women's clothes as well in my twenties. And then through a bad experience with a Utah cop that stopped um, because I got harassed. And anyway, yeah. So now been like openly trans non-binary for like two or three years now. And it's amazing. It's, feels really good it's hard like looking back seeing that I could have had this sooner like a lot of what I've been doing in therapy lately is working through purity culture and you know repressed sexuality which I don't necessarily mean as sexual orientation just like my sexuality as a whole has been repressed yeah so struggling through that and recognizing the ways these things that made me smaller and made me make made my joy inaccessible, um, have been passed down through my ancestral lines as Mormons, which I also see as tied to the sexual violence that was in my house growing up too. So it's just this interplay of like sexuality that's tied into my gender, that's tied into my Mormonism experience, as well as like what is still going on with me today as I, you know, continue to learn and grow and heal and you know, now lately I've been feeling more bi-curious as I'm also like pulling out those layers of the homophobia that I've inherited and internalized. So, yeah. Thank you. I don't think we we generally do this, but it would be worthwhile, I think, to also maybe introduce your work. You have, you're an artist and you're an activist, and maybe you can give us a little bit of background of both those things. Yeah, I don't think I gave my pronouns yet. I used they, them, which I think you all know, but for everyone else. So I am an artist um, during my MFA thesis, which is why I moved to Tiwa land in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was studying art and ecology, and I came to that as a person who loves being outside. I love camping. I love hiking. When I left Mormonism, land became the place through which I sought to restore and heal my spirituality. So there's a very like rich connection there for me, especially as the land in my hometown in Nuwu land in St. George, Utah, continues to be like this really important and safe place for me as I was mm, learning how much I didn't fit in with the people I grew up with, the, you know, the, the, my people, the people who, you know, like my ancestors have been among culturally and genetically for 150 years. So as I was doing that, I was like doing these intuitive experiences of us relating to stone for all of these different layers in the way that we think about stone, that it holds our memories. We put our memorials and our monuments into it. We see the like that stone is going to live forever But in stone time, it's also always changing. It used to be a liquid and now it's a solid. And so there's also these non-binary senses of our lithic world that I was getting into. But as I was doing that, living in Tiwa land where there was the Pueblo revolt and there continues to be a really strong indigenous presence in this land that has been 
brutally erased in most of the rest of the country, I started to realize that I don't get to just have this direct, intuitive, spiritual connection with the land, this intimate relationship, without also problematizing and really deeply trying to understand the relationship I already have with the land, which is, you know, rooted in settler colonialism. One of the things that I say is that, like, my love for the land grew in a massacre site. And how how do you hold a love that grew in a massacre site? And so through that, I started studying, learning the histories as to how my ancestors end up in St. George, Utah, making St. George, Utah in New Land. In order to understand the relationship in history, my people and I already have with that place. And so through that, I started to learn, which is straight. If you're Mormon, you'll understand. It's weird that I didn't know that I have 100% Mormon pioneer ancestry, which I tie into that trauma and abuse is also locked in that history. And as you said, Mormons often avoid confrontation. And so as I think the stories of abuse were sort of hidden and put away, so too went the rest of the history. So as I'm studying like how I end up here, I found out that I have that ancestry and then also started to like read their histories as well as the histories that often don't get told in Mormon lens histories, like the genocides and, you know, how... Uh, you know, we often hear the story that when Brigham Young and the Mormons got there, everybody was friends, like the Thanksgiving story. We sat down and enjoyed some sago lily bulbs together. It's not true. <laughs> they weren't really welcomed. They were tolerated and seen as a potential ally against the rest of the United States. And as soon as Mormon numbers grew, that dynamic shifted dramatically and they moved towards settler dominance. And so through learning that, I was like, why have I never heard any of these stories? Like, why, why, why are these not told? These are pioneer histories. And as I started that project, it was also important to me for me to find my place in social justice movements, because we often hear not to appropriate, and yet we're also supposed to be allies, and we're supposed to listen, but we're also supposed to be doing our own work. And so it got into this place where I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do But then there's like this huge, fairly obvious, but also invisibilized space where it's like white people taking on white supremacy, like not not necessarily taking on like pro-black or pro-African things and not necessarily like becoming the new like go indigenous thing. But it's like we just need to, you know, it. I guess it's the kind of thing that I see it as settlers and northern europeans uh, who have inherited white supremacy our job is to take our foot our collective foot off of the necks of oppressed and colonized peoples we're not here to be saviors or to help people up to our level because our level is on their backs and so really what we need to do is move out of the way so that became my thing so that's one of my things is that i try to reiterate is like I run an Instagram account that shares these histories that for, I would imagine, 99% of us have no idea. Like, I didn't even realize that the Book of Mormon was technically about indigenous peoples. And I grew up in a border town. St. George is a border town to the Nuwu Shivwitz Reservation. 
I didn't even know they were there. I didn't even know that like the Book of Mormon was supposedly, you know, I, it's a weird that it got like, because it, it's a little bit fantasy. My child brain didn't really ever place it in one place or another, especially since like it got turned into cartoons and I learned the Book of Mormon stories more through the living scriptures than I did from the scriptures. So it like, yeah, sat in like a Disney-fied place. So as I was realizing, like, I don't think anybody knows letter on the literal histories, but then the philosophical histories, the ideological histories that shaped Mormonism that then made Mormonism shape the lands that we now live in. And so even though a lot of what I do is like social justice work, it is all rooted in land justice and land love work in my belief that for us to survive the coming changes that colonialism has devastated the earth with, we need to shed those beliefs that we are not of the land, which again, kind of for me is rooted in Christianity in the separation of the body and the soul. Whereas to me, like we didn't come from space and get planted on earth we grew out of the earth. I mean, I guess we came from space because so did the earth, but we're not separate. We are like, we are as much a part of the land as the tree. And we need to learn that while also recognizing that it just doesn't get to become tree hugging kumbaya because we owe the land and its people's really serious apologies and reparations, which requires a lot of education because you need to know what you're sorry for if you're going to apologize. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So you're going through this marriage and figuring out sexuality and queerness and all of those things in sort of a Mormon context while simultaneously doing all of this other work. How did you see those things overlap or intersect? Or how do you see them now do that? Mm. Yeah, I did not see them as interrelated. They felt like different parts of my life. Like one is... They're both deeply personal, but one I took the personal and made it public in that most of the personal history I'm studying is like a more collective public history. It's the history of Mormonism, which is in me. It's in my body and my mind. And then the gender stuff and sexuality stuff felt more like disparate and off to the side as more of like, you know more direct personal identity and less collective identity. But as I kept learning more about those things, the coloniality and the ideological frameworks started to become deeply overlapped in that patriarchy and misogyny are directly in the land. One of the first things that colonizers did to indigenous cultures to uh, many indigenous cultures had more than two genders as well as often a matrilineal leadership system and that was one of the first things colonism did is move in and abolish that and make it patriarchy only and so simultaneously in the way that misogyny is deeply a part of colonial ideologies we exploit land in the same way that we exploit women and yeah and there's all the ideas of like a mother earth and those kinds of things that creates this feminized land that turns it into something that both needs protection from patriarchy as well as protection by patriarchy 
and needs to be tamed because even though women are supposedly, you know, this pedestaled creature that's fragile and delicate, femininity is also a wild river that needs to be dammed and controlled. And so in recognizing the gender oppression ideologies within colonialism, I started to recognize that non-binary space in a lot of things that I don't feel that any person is 100% mask or femme or man or woman. We're all weird combination blends of things. You know, life feeds on death. We're, we're standing, we're in the sky, but we say we're on the ground. Like there's just, there's just layers and layers of like, you can't really put a pin in anything all the way down to like the way we categorize species. This was something that my ex-partner, who's also an artist, Bug Carlson, they talk about their own gender and compare it to lichen in that lichen occupies at least three different branches of kingdoms. Like they're their fungus, their bacteria, which are like as separate as like human and stone kind of thing. And so in the fundamental way that we have put a pin in life and said, like, you belong in this category, there is life that doesn't even fit our system of categorization. So it's kind of like that peeling back. And again, like tying it back to Mormonism is I grew up in this world in which there are solid answers. There are, everything is pinned downable. Everything is categorizable. Until it's not, and you know, you start to get the God's mysterious ways, and you'll know when we're dead. Which I asked those questions, and I think that was also part of why I started. Of like, you got to have all the answers, or you got to admit you don't have all the answers. You don't get both. But then now I'm here, and I'm like, yeah, you don't. You you get both because that's true. You can have answers and not have answers, and so living in that realm of like uncertainty and like constant curiosity and really trying to fight the urge to like have that order and control over all things and be able to let it be messy and fluid and let it be, you know, move around all the time and change, just start to get more comfortable with like the fact that the realest thing on earth is change. Not necessarily like this static stasis of eternal life and eternal families and that kind of thing. That's how they started to overlap for me is in that space of colonization as well as like letting go of having a hard fast category accepting that like i don't know what my gender is because non-binary isn't a gender it's a non-gender and so you know like i don't know what that is and i'm beginning to be like that's okay that it i don't necessarily need one like that's an outside world that tells me i need to have a thing that's not something that grows out of the earth that's something we put on top of it to make ourselves feel better about the inherent uncertainty of existence. That was a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> I'm curious about your, you you talked about being 18 and getting this luggage and starting to maybe deconstruct some, some of your Mormonism. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that deconstruction process for you and maybe also how you came back to be able to sit in a Mormon space where you talk about Mormon history in a way that is trying to be anti-colonial and trying to to help Mormonism recognize its settler colonial roots. Can you talk about that process? Yeah. So a couple of things is at that period, in my mind, what was happening is I was recognizing that I think the first thing 
that stood out to me was I knew people, I had started like taking some university classes during the summers or college classes and, you know, so started to have professors who weren't Mormon and who were amazing people, like some of the most kind, like actually Christ-like people I'd ever met. And as we all know, there's plenty of people in the pews who are far from Christ-like. And so like it started to not, that really started to bother me, the 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 practical pra- practice side of Mormonism, that like this very Christ-like person wasn't going to get into heaven right away or going to make it to the top tier because they didn't show up to the right building or, you know, do the right handshake. But these kind of self-righteous, snooty people were going to make it because, you know, they they didn't have it in their heart, but they had it in their hands sort of thing. And so that that started to like wear at me. So I did my search pondering and praying. And like what came back to me was keep looking like this. This isn't for you. You should venture out and find out what's out there. And then unfortunately, doing as I was told and search pondering and praying, but finding the wrong answer um, was not welcomed. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of distance from my mom and I for quite some time. Anyway, some years later, as I started this project, one of the important things for me was to reconnect with my mom in a way where we could have more than just small talk again, which meant that we had to have hard conversations because I'm also not going to like make myself smaller and I've come very far from where I grew up. And one of her things is she was saying that it was a fear because I had a cousin who went on a mission and got sent home early because he smoked cannabis while he was out. And so it was this like, I chose to fail rather than trying and failing, which I can also see as I was young, you know, and that's scary. It's a lot of pressure to go on a mission and do that well when like, honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. Like I wasn't ready to go. I'm, I'm, I'm shy. I have social anxiety. I was raised in an abusive home. I'm not going to go out and get rejected by a bunch of people alone, far away from my family. Anyway, so then I came back to Mormonism through that land, you know, working with land and working with uh, the place that I call home. Through that, I wanted to come back to Mormonism because as I was like having these intuitive experiences with land, I recognized that within my unthinking thoughts is a lot of white supremacy and settler colonial supremacy. And so I had to actually go back and learn the roots of my roots in order to understand where my taken for granted beliefs, my baseline realities come from so that I could hopefully then see the things that became the invisible air that's all around me in order to change that. And for me, that was Mormonism. Because as I started to learn, like, okay, how did St. George become St. George? Okay, how did Mormons become Mormons? So then bringing it back to Mormonism was when, one, I was realizing, like, those stories aren't told in Mormon histories. Those stories aren't told in Sunday school or not told in seminary. They weren't told in my house. And so I felt a responsibility to bring them back home. One, the pandemic started a week after my thesis show, so I wanted to bring my thesis show to Utah and try to find somewhere to host it. That became increasingly (laughs) difficult, so I took it to Instagram and started to redevelop community in Mormon and ex-Mormon spaces, which 
One, I had kind of been like, yeah, it's a quirky part of my past. It's not really a part of my life anymore, even though it's a part of my history. It's not part of my life. But being back in those spaces made me realize how important that connection was, especially as I was building this project for two years with people who I had to be like, okay, here's the history of Mormonism. Now we can get to my point about settler colonialism in this one event. (laughs) But like, so it was nice to be able to shortcut and be like, okay, you all know already what I'm talking about. You understand the culture, the context, the histories, the books. And one of the things that was really important to me that I felt that giving away so much of my time and energy and work on Instagram was worth it is because people who have deconstructed from Mormonism, whether practicing or not, if you're questioning things that are fed, given to you as a given, as something, you know, you don't need a question. If you are questioning those things and you've questioned them deeply, a lot of us have had the rug pulled out from under us or we pulled our own rug out from under us. We've lost like the core of our reality the thing that makes everything make sense. And again, that like uncertainty space, we fall into the uncertainty space after being raised to run from uncertainty at all costs. And it's terrifying and essential because these things, these oppressive systems harm everyone. Like white people are harmed by white supremacy. And so not only do we need to take our foot off of someone else's neck, we need to take our foot off of someone else's neck because that hurts you. It doesn't feel good to harm others. like, And it doesn't feel good to make yourself smaller because, again, none of us fit into gender. None of us fit into whiteness. Whiteness is made up. We're not like that's not a culture. It's an oppressive system. And so for me, I was like, it became way more accessible to de-assimilate, to disassimilate from U.S. supremacy, to disassimilate from U.S. nationalism, U.S. exceptionalism, to begin to like pull back the layers of imperialism and like the belief that, you know, the U.S. is the greatest country on earth and our constitution changed everything, which are all like deeply Mormon far-right views. And so I wanted to share that with other people because one, I was like, you deserve this information. It's your history too. And two, we have a unique ability to approach this terrifying thing of losing our identity as, you know, the greatest country on earth and that, you know, we're doing good and to be able to really sit with that reality and the, you know, massive changes we're going to have to make. Anyway, if you've left Mormonism already, that becomes a lot more accessible because you've already profoundly lost the ground from beneath you and also found that there was ground just another foot down. Yeah, I agree. I think that's really profound. I think that, I think that people don't recognize how, if you're not raised LDS where you're taught from the very beginning that the world functions in a certain way, that once you, once you, say maybe the world doesn't function that way it is like losing your reality you're you don't know what's real and so i agree with you that it's that it then becomes easier to do that again personally i struggle with folks who are willing to let go of that reality of a a latter-day saint reality and then not take it that next step further and say and be willing to to 
go into that next phase of what's the next reality that I can challenge? How do you approach that? Because that's essentially what your account is, is going to that next level. Maybe my question is, do you have advice for people to to get to that place? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because that, I guess, maybe to answer the question a little indirectly, is that one, I didn't know that was a thing. Because again, I'd been so far out of Mormonism. And by the time I started this project, I was, you know, half my friends are trans or queer. And like, so... You know, I I was deeply already out of a Mormonism of even a conservative and even moving a little left of liberal spaces. And so to me, it was like, yeah, that would that would make sense. As soon as people see, I just thought I could show it up and be like, yeah, we all know how this is was a problem in Mormonism. Guess what? Mormonism inherited that from the United States. This wasn't their idea. They just picked it up because they're they're a child of the U.S. They were born here. They grew up here. They learned everything they know from their parents. And so I thought it was just kind of going to get picked up that way. But as I do, do the page, I have noticed a recurring theme that frustrates me. And I have to like step back because I'll, I'll share things that aren't necessarily about Mormonism. They're, you know, I, they're mostly I only go like one or two steps away. And those ones don't really get the attention and interaction that ones that are Mormon specific do, which I start to get upset because I'm like, this, this isn't about Mormonism. I'm not here to tear down the temples. I'm here to tear down white supremacy and settler colonialism. And Mormonism is a really good microcosm. It's a, it's a smaller picture of the U.S., that makes it easier to tell these stories without me getting overwhelmed by the mass of histories that the U.S. holds. Mormonism gets to be the smaller one that was pivotal to Manifest Destiny, pivotal to that early 1800s religious period. And so, it, yeah, it becomes frustrating. Like, I, I shared this with a friend I talked to through that Instagram page, and she was like, yeah, it makes sense. You know, the, a lot of people have been hurt by Mormonism, that you're talking to, because I'm mostly talking to other settlers. And so it's easier to get the kill the beast vibe for that church. And it's harder to get the kill the beast vibe for the US because, again, it is terrifying to lose your reality. And it can be twice as terrifying to lose it doubly over. While I think that also it's like, but if you have survived it once, you can do it again. And you also already know that it was worth it, that the pain of growth is worth no longer experiencing the pain of stagnation and the pain of status quo oppression. Anyway, so then I have to like go into my teacher vibe because I've had a professor that would like yell at the students who showed up to class about the students who didn't show up to class. And so then I'll move into my like, why aren't you guys interacting with the posts that aren't about Mormonism? And then I realize like the people who are going to see this are the people who show up to class. So I can't do So then I step back and I'm like, okay, how do I say this otherwise? But I guess it's just, I, I mean, I think one of the simplest way to like encourage people is it's like, okay, if you left a religion because of misogyny, you left a religion because of queer phobia and you left a religion because of white supremacy what are you doing now? Like leaving something doesn't stop it. Like, you know, you, you, (laughs) 
you walk in on somebody chopping people to bits and you're like, I'm not going to be in this area anymore. And it's like, okay, that didn't change anything. I'm glad your personal purity feels better and you get to not think about that anymore. But the people that violence is aimed at don't get to stop thinking about it or experiencing it. So I guess that would be my thing is like the things, almost everything that I know of that I see in this space that people have been harmed by or upset by this church one, they're not limited to this church. And two, the point of anyone's personal liberation is to turn around and help others be liberated as well. And as I move away from liberal spaces, I also recognize that personal liberation will not make us all free. Even if every single one of us stopped being racist, our laws and our structures and our unthinking thoughts are all built on those oppressive systems. And so like we actually have to do work and organize, not just individually stop being racist. So yeah, that's my call to call to queer. (laughs) Yes. I love it so much. You said it so eloquently and you know, so often we're, we're, we're very much on the same page. Sometimes we're not. Nick and I have these intense conversations in our private DMs with one another. But I think overall, we have so much love for one another because at the core, both of us see exactly what you just eloquently said, that at the core, we're both working to try to figure out how to help people undo all of that that's inside of them and inside of us too, right? We are both white folks from Mormon backgrounds, that also continually always have to be doing the work. And so I appreciate you just articulating that so well. I'd love to talk a little bit more about, you mentioned briefly, if you're okay expanding on this, the experience with the cop and how that um, violence, some people be like, oh, it's not violent. It sounded like it was. If you could just talk more about that experience and how that kind of changed your going back into the closet and just delaying figuring out yourself more. Yeah. So this was that period, like maybe early 20s that I was starting to be like, well, I'm not straight, but I don't think I'm gay and blah, blah, blah. I started like, one, I just like clothes. I like shop. I I like buying. I love thrift stores. So I should put it that way. I love thrift store shopping. I still use those kinds of things in my artwork. Like I feel like things that already have a history. I mean, everything has a life because everything has a history. There are no raw materials. That's that's a colonial idea. And so I started shopping in the women's section because it's three to four times as large, has way more variety, and I'm a small person, so they fit me. Like, they would fit my shoulders and my sleeve length because, like, a small in men's is, like, too long but too narrow for my shoulders so anyway women's clothes fit me and this was before when I didn't realize (laughs) what I am and I was just like no they're just more comfortable and like I get to wear variety look this one has lace on the collar isn't that fun (laughs) you're freaking queer (laughs) um anyway so I'm a cannabis user and have been for some time. So I was in a friend's car and this was like someone I didn't really know very well. And we were going from like one house to another with a group of people hanging out. And 
we get pulled over in St. George, Utah, and St. George is the kind of town that is so homogenous that, like, I become the one who stands out. They, like, actively will give bus tickets to unsheltered people to send them to Vegas. Like, it's a highly controlled town, like, footloose. They, they will allow venues to have a music permit, but not a dance permit. And so then the kids are all out in the desert doing heroin and overdosing because they give no place for youth to be youth. Anyways, highly controlled town. So we get pulled over by the flipping drug task force, which is like, what? why are you doing a traffic stop for supposedly a crack in the windshield? Anyway, so the cop is talking to me and like, I'm wearing that shirt that has like a straight collar with the lace that like runs all down it. And that's, I look so cute. And he's like, where'd you get that shirt? I was like, the thrift store? It's like, yeah, but in the men's section. I was like, no, obviously not. <laughs> like, men's clothes aren't this cute. That's why I stopped wearing them. Anyway, so then he, like, pulls me out of the car. And, like, for some reason, this person had, like, seven pipes in their car. It's the only time I've, like, really gotten a ticket or anything. So he just harasses me. I have, like, a pair of socks where, like, they're two different colors, but they're from the same, like, set of socks. So they're still matching just different colors. He's like, you got to stop getting high before you get dressed in the morning. So, like, feeling threatened like that and like having no like I don't know just I'm sure any of us no matter what like you get pulled over by a cop your heart rate accelerates you get nervous because like you're in a really dangerous situation with next to no control like as we've all seen it happens to African and indigenous people and disabled people far more than most of us but like they can just kill you so it's terrifying anyway so that just made me publicly afraid to dress the way I wanted to and so I, yeah, like you say, basically went back in the closet without even realizing I had come out of the closet and, you know, just started wearing blue jeans and a plain t-shirt, basically being dog funny and just wore the same clothes every day because my joy got smushed. That just like, that really hurts my heart to hear. And I, I think that highlights, I mean, one, we can go into a whole systemic oppression and how police brutality and things impact, but also just like how maybe seemingly innocuous comments by people can be so hurtful to queer people and put them back in the closet when they didn't even realize they were out. That just, you saying it smushed my joy, like that really, really is so hard to hear. And how much longer did it then take for you to refigure this out? That's just really heartbreaking that you yeah. didn't fit in this box, and so we must put you in a box, and you're in trouble that you're not in the box. And it's just, why can't we just let people live their lives? Like, that's what, <laughs> ah, anyways, that's where my head is. Yeah, yeah, it took me like another 10 years. And <laughs> the next first time that I went out in public wearing my pearls and a dress, we went on this trail by the river. That's like kind of a popular one. And as we're walking around, we pass this family with a few kids and the father puts his arm in front of his kids and like hides them from me, which, you know, obviously is super painful. And it gave me this moment of like, right, patriarchy is not true. They're terrified of femininity. It scares them. It has immense power. Like, Femininity isn't protected because it's weak. 
it's protected because it needs to be kept in check in order for patriarchy to work because femininity is so powerful. I look terrified, this full grown cowboy of a man just by wearing a dress. That alone was amazing to me while also just like really sad because I think that in that whole like, you know, grooming idea and why, because as you were talking, I was like, yeah, why does he care that I dress the way I do? I'm literally harming no one. And then I remember that because then I'm like, well, they're afraid we're going to contaminate the culture and blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, but I'm not like actively doing anything. But then I remember I go to the grocery store and children do look at me like they, they study. They're trying to figure out what's going on and not in the way that like some people trying to figure out what's going on in the way like, what are you? But the kids are just like, huh, that is new. I've never seen this before. It's like it's opening up new spaces in my mind. And if I'd have seen that younger... I, as far as I'm aware, never saw a trans person growing up or any sort of gender barrier breaking person. And so I recognize that, yeah, like the whole grooming thing is absurd and I see where they're coming from because if if it's completely invisibilized, then people like me won't know and won't find it and other people won't know and won't find it. And fortunately for me, mine wasn't a life-threatening case of gender dysphoria. And I got to make it to my mid-30s, just being weird and knowing that I was never very good at being a man. And also that I didn't want to, because when you grow up with an abusive dad, then you start to learn that men are bad. And so then I'm like, I don't want to be a man. That sounds scary. Yeah. I just got chills as you were talking about the idea of keeping femininity in check because it is powerful. And I know we're not putting people into boxes of male versus female, you know, we were deconstructing the idea of gender and just, but I'm so curious, can you elaborate on that a little bit more about the power and why people might be scared of queer people in this way who are transgressing these social norms about dressing the way that you're supposed to because the way your genitals were formed at birth? (laughs) Yeah. And I can mostly speak to that from my own experience, because as I would imagine, Kate has a very different experience of femininity and being in public and transgressing, because there's also to step back a little bit, like colonialism already set up that hierarchy. And one of the things I think about is that I'm going in the wrong direction, according to our culture. Like I've seen it and not to say that like trans mask people, obviously everyone is abused by transphobia, but I think a lot of the times the dominant system, which is men and patriarchy will see trans mask people as at least you're going in the right direction in the way that second wave feminism, if you can't beat them, join them like that, that got absorbed into the power structure because they at least were moving in the right direction. Yeah, we're losing the nuclear family structure, but something's got to give. So, okay, they can wear pants and have a job. Whereas for me, like I'm moving in the wrong direction. I was given all the privilege and power in the world besides that I'm small, which, you know, that's its own anti-patriarchy thing because I'm small and I'm sensitive and I'm soft and all the things I'm not supposed to be. And so I think there, one, is power in the fact that I am choosing a social identity, a social relationship that is weaker. I'm moving in, you know, I'm I'm dangerous because I'm challenging it by saying, no, this brings me more joy 
than trying to fight for a place at the top of this pyramid and leaving the pyramid altogether. That's a hazard itself because it it starts, you know, again, children can read that joy and that gives them the idea of like, oh, I can do something that isn't this thing I'm supposed to do for my own happiness. I don't have to follow the direction everybody else is going because that's the, you know, the way as we're all taught, like this is the way to happiness. You have a family, you go to college, you get a job, you have a kid, you, you know, you do all these steps and then ba-bam, happiness. Even though, you know, clearly that's not for everybody. <laughs> and too many of us Mormons are five years into a marriage when we're like, oh, this ain't it. And so I think there's power in that. And to move it out to the like directly settler colonial thing is that the nuclear family is essential to settler colonialism because as Patrick Wolfe writes, settler colonialism's logic destroys to replace. And so genocide and assimilation operate under that destroy. We have to destroy indigenous peoples. We have to destroy their connections to the land in order for us to occupy and exploit it. We also have to destroy our own connections to land, which is part of, you know, I often say we are a displaced people. We somewhat voluntarily displaced ourselves, so it wasn't a forcible displacement, although I think the invention of capitalism in Europe did create conditions that could be described as we were forcibly but yeah, it's in a messy, that non-binary space where we are oppressed oppressors, especially a lot of Mormon pioneers, weren't really the ones with power or gaining much. Anyway, so settler colonialism needs to recreate itself. And so the genetically reproductive nuclear family is essential because it makes more settlers to capitalistically hand down your stolen property in order to maintain this occupation, because the nuclear family also maintains this system of passing down ideologies. It's the parents who train the children how to perform their gender roles properly, which, you know, my mom taught me as much about how to perform as a patriarch as much as any of the men in my ward did, or my stepdad or my brothers. And so, yeah, I think that power of choosing femininity and wearing it joyfully also works in that, that it challenges one of these basic levels of maintaining settler colonial occupation. To maybe make that make a little bit more sense is I often talk about how the U.S. laws that says one drop of African heritage, at one drop of African blood in your body makes you black, Yet we have blood quantums for indigenous peoples that makes it so you have to be like, I don't know, like 50% indigenous genetically in order to be indigenous. Those things are the same rule. We wanted more free labor. So we made as many people black as we could. And we wanted fewer indigenous people so that we could steal their land to force people to work on it for our capital. And so by making blood quantum, we made fewer indigenous people indigenous. And by making the one drop rule, we made more people black. And when those same things have never really been applied to whiteness and in the way that whiteness has grown, like, you know, originally Irish and Italians weren't white. And so just this very fact of maintaining reproductive humans and reproductive nuclear families, because you need that family unit to pass down the ideology 
not just the ancestry because otherwise you end up with people like me they're gonna ruin everything (laughs) the super scary boogie people that come in the night and turn your kids queer and (laughs) anti-capitalist and (laughs) anti-oppression no they want everybody fed and healthy well it just as you talk, I find myself getting so infuriated that this is the system we live in. And it's really hard sometimes as a human, but especially as a social worker, you know, I'm trained to look at systems and oppression and things like that. And it's so hard when I sit with someone in a therapy office trying to help them. And I'm like, nothing's wrong with you. This system is effed up. Like, how am I supposed to help you when this is the system. (laughs) And so anyways, that's where my mind is going is just like, this is a really messed up system. And I so appreciate the work that you and others are doing to show how messed up it is and try to open up people's minds to what's actually happening here and how you can deconstruct some of that, not just deconstruct religion maybe, but then take that next step of what we've been talking about. But it's so tricky to get there for a lot of people. A lot of people refuse to look at further deconstruction. And I, uh, it's just really, really hard sometimes as a human being to sit at this intersection of all these things. So Nick is absolutely right. The trans femme and trans women are the most at risk within the trans community for transgressing these lines. And I think that there is, there is, both privilege and challenges in terms of passing as well, or however you want to, to talk about that assumptions, where if you are clocked, in my case, I'm clocked often, people don't quite know what to do with me, exactly like the little kids that you're saying, people don't quite know what to do with me and that clocking is dangerous. And also passing is also dangerous too. So in some sense, you have Across the United States, there are many states that have a panic defense, and usually this panic defense is used in terms of sexuality. It's sometimes called the gay panic, but it's also being used for people who have injured, harmed, or killed trans people, and particularly trans women. And they use this as a defense in court, saying that I didn't know this person was trans, and when I found out, I... I was so upset by it. I'm briefly insane and killed or harmed or did whatever to this person. Uh, These are still on the books. These, These panic defenses are still on the books across the states. And again, it's exactly what you're saying, that there is actually an inbuilt system into the law to say we... We are so afraid of AMAB people or people socialized as boys, however we want to talk about that, as just dressing differently. Dressing differently enough that we're going to allow certain certain instances where you could kill that person. That, to me, emphasizes exactly what you're talking about, and it emphasizes the danger at play here for just doing something a little bit different, dressing in going down the aisle and picking out a shirt with lace versus going down the aisle with a shirt that doesn't have lace. We are so 
infatuated with this idea of gender that we're willing to to allow people to die for that in a variety of different ways. This is just one specific way that we we've allowed this into the system. It's just one point I wanted to bring up about about trans women and trans femmes, how this is just a completely different scenario and situation when you are going that opposite direction. It's a really good point. Yeah. And it is like thinking about it. I don't know much about this. I have, I know that that's a thing, but like, again, that, that double standard of how many of us were imagining a, you know, a fab woman murdering a trans man when, you know, they got their pants off and how many of us were imagining a cisgender man murdering a trans woman when they got the pants off that bleeds out into like stand your ground laws, just being black in a certain neighborhood, you're in the wrong place. You're doing the wrong thing. Your identity isn't supposed to be here. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're filled with those and that there is this double standard where again, in those, that patriarchy way that men are allowed to have anger, like right there, that's legalized men's aggression and like in that in that same sense of policing like you know in in those and i also love that you really that you brought up how we're obsessed with gender because i think that's also something we often don't think about is the like cis cis people are as much if not more obsessed with gender than gender challenging people i don't know how to yeah gender divergent people but yeah the way like we afford that space and thinking of that. I think people socialize to be men and the, the space of men itself is far more restricted in certain ways. Obviously, you know, we misogyny is very real and misogyny is applied to men. Like men have to be even smaller than women because women have been doing feminism for a hundred years or more And so they've opened up the space. Women get to wear pants in public and no one goes, what are you? I wear a dress in public and everyone asks, what am I? And so like there are these weird double standards where it continues to be anti-femininity on all sides. Yeah, even just, yeah, thinking of like sometimes I try to watch 90s comedies and can't get like 10 minutes into them before there's a transphobic joke about a trans woman fitting in. And like you were saying, I'm not sure, like I'm still developing and part of being non-binary for me is everything is in constant flux and I don't need to stay one thing. But also sometimes I think about getting gender affirming surgery and leaning more into like being a trans woman. And it scares the crap out of me because right now, I have a beard. And so it's very obvious that, you know, for most people like, okay, that's just a man in a dress. Whereas it's far more dangerous if that I start to pass as a woman that allows men to have their anger. And yeah, that was another in thinking of those in the way that's policed, like growing up, you know, I, anytime I was anything femme that gets like aggressively assaulted by the boys my age by the parents in my ward even the way i'm not i've never actually asked this but like in young women's do the young women's leaders come up and like really hard grab your shoulder as like a friendly thing 
don't know, I know basically every like priesthood boy has had their priesthood leaders come up and like, how are you, brother Jacobson? And it's like enraging because one, I'm like, don't touch me. <laughs> Two, I don't like to communicate through violence. Thank you. I hadn't even thought about that part. Like, again, it, it is interesting how gendered these basic interactions are by how someone looks at you and assumes you are something. Yeah, I've never had someone do that. It's very hands-off, demure, maybe a handshake. But yeah, that's so fascinating that our experiences are so vastly different by how someone perceives, oh, you're female. Oh, you're male. Oh, what are you? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That's so, so interesting to think about. For me, that's half the fun. It's like, I like that people don't know what to do. And that like some straight people, you know, I kind of like that some straight men are like, I don't know, their legs are hot, but I'm not attracted from the shoulders up. I don't know what to do with my feelings. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, not everything is hard lined as you think it is, is it? Welcome to uncertainty. <laughs> That's awesome. That's definite queer joy. So as we're sitting here talking, I am loving just all these things that you're bringing to mind. But I think what comes to mind for me overall is like, what do we do from here? And I know that is such an impossible question. But seriously, like, how, how do we help other people realize the systems that they're in are impacting everything and that we need to tear the system down and do something new. <laughs> hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I know uh, you have all the answers, right, Nick? So tell us. <laughs> that was what I've been trying to share this whole time is that I am a prophet with all the answers and please ask me. <laughs> no, that and that's a really good point. I think starting from there is like, for me, one of the most important things, especially as I'm talking to Mormons, is like, I am not a prophet. I'm not like I, I can be a leader at most, but I'm a leader trying to build other leaders, not an army of followers. Actually, the bigger the page gets, the closer I get to being like, ah, I'm done. Because um, <laughs> like, yeah, I want everyone to develop that ability in yourself. I don't want to be the sole source of this information for you. I need you to find your own because that question is hard to answer. It depends on where you are. Like, talk to your families when they say those kinds of things with wherever you are on understanding oppressive systems. Like, when you recognize that stuff, share as to why it matters that, you know, that... Because there are really practical reasons besides, like, uh, whatever the word is, PC. Like, that... No, that's not a good reason to do it. You do it because we care for each other. I think that what... I. That would be the most synthesized way to do it is that it's about love. Like for me, the rage of anti-oppression is rooted in love. It's because I want everyone cared for. I want everyone to have the safety they need. No, I don't want to nerf the world. Like, yes, I understand that being alive is hard and painful and we need to be prepared for that. But adding more pain and difficulty unnecessarily to that isn't helping anyone. We need to care for each other and love each other because being alive is hard. We all die. That's existentially painful. And so why not care for each other in between? Like, what, why did we build our world around competition and scarcity? 
when we have so much and like I feel like most of our basic innate status is to care for each other. That's just been like twisted into only caring for those closest to us and those who look most like us. And so I think, yeah, the most basic way is love, but to make that more direct and complicated, I think we also have to organize, which is for me, education is one of those steps because unless you have started to do the education and healing work, like really reflecting on that education and addressing the way your body reacts to painful information, especially because I think a lot of us settlers and especially Mormons, we were taught not to differentiate between the pain of growth and the pain of harm. And so we avoid pain altogether. And that's something we really need to work on in ourselves as we heal is uh, learning to be more comfortable in the pain of growth, because we're going to hear a lot of uncomfortable things. We're going to hear a lot about harm that we have perpetuated and been implicated in. And that hurts because we're used to being the good ones, the nice ones, the right ones, the ones helping everybody out and spreading our beautiful life ways across the world. And so that we really need that space. And so like, yeah, I educate others. That is one of the steps I do. And I have done years and years and years of work before I started talking to others because I don't think everyone should start educating people no matter where you are, like your friends and your family. Absolutely. But like to become a public educator, not necessarily because that takes a lot of work and it, it's hard. It's a big responsibility. Like I'm even being like, can I really do this? Cause I'm not a mediator and like mediating comments in the community section is a whole thing too. Anyway. So the reason education is then to move toward organizing because like I was saying before, even if every single one of us heal and become personally liberated, we still live in an oppressive structure that is 500 years of laws built on itself, as well as like social norms and all of these gendered relational dynamics, like the way we treat each other has already been trained into us and built into laws you know, moving back to the, like, people where they're not supposed to be. We had, like, you know, the the person with a penis in women's dress passing. We have the, you know, black person in a white neighborhood. There's also the poor person. They don't belong anywhere, like, you know. And so we have to, I believe we have to organize in order for us to be able to build power to change those systems because, Like the far right has been organized forever. Like the KKK is an organization. NRA is an organization. CPAC is an organization. Uh, The CIA is an organization. We have to organize as powerfully because, again, I believe there are far more people who genuinely believe that everyone deserves safety and care and food and shelter than there are people who don't. But we're all infighting because uh, our shared oppression as a lower class people, as people oppressed by capitalism has been obscured by anti-queerness, by anti-blackness and anti-indigeneity and patriarchy. And all those are built into every community. So we need to like educate ourselves out of those ways of thinking so that we can work together so that we can build the power 
to stop these systems because that is one of our problems is yeah there are like 300 people who have most of the money in the entire world as well as most of the power and there are billions of us but we have very little access and through capitalism are all very very busy trying to stay alive as well as you know climb the ladder so we can maybe have a little less stress in our lives because we were taught that was the way out of oppression is becoming an oppressor rather than tearing the system down entirely and building one entirely framed around caring for each other. I would suggest reading The Red Deal by the Red Nation as kind of an early step because I think that's a really good synthesis of the networks of problems from police violence to environmental destruction to white supremacy to anti-queerness and wraps all of them together as a singular issue and then shows how communities and cultures of care and economies of care are really our way out of here. So the what next obviously is hugely mostly faceted. We have like eight generations of oppressive power shaping the world that we all exist in and like for the most part are ignorant of that's the you know the water for the fish. And so one, it's not going to happen in our lifetime. And I think the little like juicy tendrils that make it appealing is that one, don't stress yourself out because this probably, you know, we're not going to be done in our lifetime. So in that same like sense of uncertainty, don't engage in this kind of work thinking you're going to be done in a year and go back to brunch. Like this is our life's work. This is our new, I hate new norm. This is, this is our new way of being. And this is just how we live now because we've been digging a hole for a long time and it's going to take a lot of collective work to get ourselves back out. And then the other one is to go back to the love. Like organizing is the first time that I've had that sense of community again since leaving the church because I'm now in a group of people who collectively study in order to make ourselves and the world around us a safer, happier, more caring place to live. And we do it voluntarily. Like that's another reason why I like engaging with Mormons is that we all know how to organize already. We have already been volunteer organizers in a massive organization. We know how to plan an event. We know how to set up the chairs for it. We know how to call our neighbors to ask for support. Like we all know how to organize. And we just now need to do it and also take back the agency that we were all told we have, but weren't really allowed to exercise. We need to all become leaders of each other. I think that's so true. And we can cut this part if you don't want it, Kate. But I think Kate is doing something really cool along those lines that they just started this new Instagram account to help organize queer individuals and have a community care model in the Utah Valley, Salt Lake, Davis County areas. And I loved a picture that they posted um, earlier this week. It was like trading the elders with the moving van for lesbians with a U-Haul. Like we can take care of each other. We know how to do it. And I think I've been feeling more called to do that as well, because it's really easy to leave the church or distance yourself and then just like not engage anymore. And it's like, no, like there's some really good stuff that we learned 
-hmm. we can really take care of each other. Like the whole idea of ministering, like actually ministering and not just a checklist. Like, why aren't we doing that once you step away from the church? Like we have the best tools to be able to do that. And Mm -hmm. so thank you for talking to that so well and eloquently. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks for the shout out Colette. But I do have to say like Nick, (laughs) has always been part of that conversation with me, right? Like we've always been talking, we've been talking about these things for at least a year now, probably a little bit longer. And we've, we, we all have established this little community of people. And even if it's on Instagram and folks might say certain things about social media organization, when that, social media organization then turns into actual on the ground organization. It's doing something. It's making a difference. And I do think that what you said was really important, Nick, that it's not going to happen in our lifetimes. Not only is it not going to happen in our lifetime, but we are never going to stop making mistakes, um, especially white people. White people are never going to stop making mistakes. You're going to enter into these spaces and you're going to be humbled because you're going to make a mistake and you're going to realize that actually white folks in these spaces are the most ignorant because we've never, we've never acknowledged the water that we're swimming in and other people have. It's not that we shouldn't be speaking in these spaces. It's that actually we don't have the knowledge to do that yet. And we have to treat people who have the knowledge and lift those voices up, treat those folks as the experts that they are. So I liked that point that it's not going to happen in our lifetimes. You have to get used to this idea. It's not going to happen in a year. And also you have to get really comfortable with being wrong and never being the expert. And I think those things are hard for, for white folks. Mm-hmm. That That's so hard. Like I am very uncomfortable hearing that. I know that logically Kate and I have talked about this, you know, Nick talks about it and it's so uncomfortable because I feel like with the systems we're in, we're told we're supposed to have all the answers coming from Mormonism. We have all the answers, right? We're not supposed to not know. We're not supposed to, still be learning different things from others and be humbled that way, sort of. And so it is, it's something I'm still wrestling with as I have ideas of things I want to do. And I'm like, am I the right person to do this? I'm going to mess up. And am I okay messing up and being called out and things like that? And sometimes that makes me then not want to do something. And I know I need to work on that of like, nope, do it anyways. I'm going to mess up. But that's really a hard barrier to overcome when we've been trained your our whole lives of, oh, no, like, you can do this and you're going to get it right and it's going to be perfect. No, it's not. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's terrifying. I've been doing this project online, like, first through my own personal account, which is, like, my artist account, the whole time. And it, it it's scary to put yourself out there and take that risk because you probably will mess up. and we crumble easily because so much of this was built for us to have that access to comfort at all times, because in the way that we have developed an inherently abusive culture to all of us, which is the reason we also have so much amazing television is because the power structures need to give us something to numb ourselves and comfort ourselves. 
And in that same way, whiteness has been afforded so much of that comfort in public spaces of not being called out. And, you know, like you were saying, Kate, that so many others have full knowledge of that water we're all swimming in because it's white supremacy. And it's a lot harder to become ignorant of white supremacy as an oppressed and colonized person versus for us, it's easier to ignore because it's not a knife in our side. It's a knife in our hand. And so, yeah, it's a lot easier for us to ignore it, which is one of the reasons, as you know, I try to reiterate a lot, is that we need to, like you said, be taking our notes from people who have the most experience with it. Indigenous peoples globally have the most experience with their lands. And so for me, it's like if we're going to work on environmental things, we take lead from indigenous peoples of their own lands. And in that same way, if we're going to address white supremacy, we take our lead from those with the most experience with it. And the like being wrong thing, that that's so important because all that we then have left after that is risk and accountability because we are so used to being in the right that we have and in, in that same sense of of not being able to know the difference between the pain of growth and the pain of harm we've also lost the ability to know when we do know and when we don't because especially like for my body i was given the place of authority everywhere i go like it's something i even think of it as i do the instagram account is like how many of you trust what I'm saying because I have a beard? And I want people to take take that into account because I, again, like I'm trying to build leaders. I don't want you just to believe me. Like you should question everything I say. That's also why I think organizing is so important as, you know, you were talking, Colette, you want to start things, but you're not sure if it's the right thing or if you're going to mess up. Like organizing collectively is so important is you have multiple perspectives keeping us in check because yes, you need to take risks, but take careful risks, take well thought through risks. We're never going to know it all. So at the end of the day, we do have to just try and we can do a lot of prep work for that. So again, it's that non-binary space that when answering, where do we go from here? It's hard to answer that because we're all standing in a different place. And even if we're all trying to get to that same place, some of us need to be walking to the right. Some of us need to be walking to the left. Some of us need to turn around. It's not a singular answer, and yet we all need to collectively be working so that we can benefit from all the different perspectives that we have. I say as I run an Instagram account alone. <laughs> well, I, I know that, yeah, you run it by yourself, but you are also taking in a lot of perspectives. It's not yours is a truth, even you just saying now, like challenge what I say, like, think for yourself, I don't have it all right. And I think that goes far in helping people that way. So uh, this has been such a good conversation. And I and were there things that you still wanted to talk about that we didn't ask about or that you were hoping we would discuss? I don't think so. No, I felt really good. Yeah. Can I say one more thing? Just along the lines of the last conversation we had, again, I want to reiterate that Nick and I don't always agree. Like we don't have the same approaches and we talk about that. And part of that organizing is getting exactly what Nick's saying, all of the different perspectives, because 
there are going to be people that you disagree with, but you want to work with because you care about one another. I care. I love Nick (laughs) and we're going to disagree and we're going to be moving things forward. So disagreement. And I think that is something that you mentioned earlier about Mormonism too, that disagreement, that contention, and Colette had said that too, that contention, we want to avoid that when in fact, caring for somebody can also involve disagreeing, disagreeing with that person. Absolutely. First, I love you too, Kate. And two, I don't remember who the person was, but I was listening to a podcast at one point and this point like just blew my mind. Diversity is conflict or conflict exists always within diversity. And so like, we're not trying to create homogeny. We need diversity in every sense of that word, especially as changes are going to become more concentrated. Diversity is how you survive change is that within that we're inherently going to have conflict And so that's, again, one of those many, many places where we as Euro settlers of Protestant waspy people, we need to start to become a lot more regulated in our nervous systems so that we can engage in generative conflict. Because from that like sort of communist socialist leftist side, struggle is inherent in our organizing. And we aren't supposed to create an organization of homogenous thought we're supposed to struggle together. We're supposed to disagree and find what really does align for the collective. Dang, good, good stuff. I am going to have to sit with a lot of what you've said because it's a lot to take in. And this is coming from someone who has done some work in this area. So I want to tell our listeners, if this is really new for you, please don't be overwhelmed. (laughs) This Mm -hmm. is a lot. And as Nick Mm -hmm. said, it's the journey of a lifetime. You do not have to have it all figured out right now. Sit with this and then figure out what small action you can do to start making progress and changing your worldview. This is work. I I went to a training on Saturday and the presenter kept saying, this isn't a spa day. This is a gym day. This is work. (laughs) You thought maybe this was going to be a fun little thing talking about your business, but like I'm making you work and this is engaging in work. This is gym. This is this is hard. But we know that there's awesome results and your world is going to be so much richer as you engage in this these hard conversations and introspection and holding dualities and all those things. So we invite you to not beat yourself up from this conversation, but to just sit with it mm-hmm. and then start having those conversations like Nick said. Start talking to friends and family and start researching, start reading, start listening to podcasts, and then figuring out how you can engage in community and what you can do in the whole, again, there's some good that comes from Mormonism, right? The lift where you stand idea from that conference talk. Do what you can where you are. You have a unique sphere of influence that you can impact as you continue to work on yourself and your worldview. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, I don't think I've ever got claps on the podcast before. That makes me so happy. <laughs> All right. As we wrap up, anything else? Thank you both. This was a deep pleasure. I really enjoyed sharing this space with you all and having this conversation. And yeah, again, like I said, I thought when I left Mormonism, I was like, yeah, it was just a weird, quirky part of my past. And then like reconnecting, 
they're just you know we are we are a peculiar people and (laughs) so it is really nice that kind of familiarity as well as like shared interests from where we are now that weren't inherently things we got from mormonism although i would argue that jesus had these conversations way more than most of the ones i heard in sunday schools i know i love all the memes that are like jesus was a minority anti-government anti-oppression flipping tables all those memes i'm like yeah why do we not talk more about that jesus yeah yeah hanging out with the disabled and the, yeah you know. and the sex workers and Thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today. If you're liking these episodes, we'd love it if you'd rate and review Call to Queer on the podcast player of your choice so that other people are more likely to find us. We'd also love it if you'd share our podcast with a friend who could benefit from hearing these stories. If you'd like to donate to support the ongoing cost of the podcast, you can do that by clicking the donate button at the top of our homepage. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at hello at calledtoqueer.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at calledtoqueer. See you next time.